And Seneca has a, a whole letter where he's like, okay, so this is a, you know, a common Stoic doctrine, but I think this is crazy. And here's why. Here's my arguments for it, you know. So I, I think we've got good models for Stoics that say, yeah, I don't need, I don't think you have to buy everything that our predecessors said. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Caleb Ontiveros and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and the other will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. In this episode of Stoic Conversations, I talk with Gregory Sadler about common criticisms of Stoicism by other philosophers. It's a really eclectic episode where we look at how Stoicism has been received and treated by different thinkers throughout history, both ancient thinkers like Aristotelians or Epicureans, but also early modern thinkers and modern thinkers such as Hegel, Nietzsche, and the neo-Aristotelian movement. Gregory Sadler is the founder and president of Reason.io, a company dedicated to making resources of contemporary and classical philosophy available and accessible to non-philosophers. He has an MA and PhD in philosophy and held a tenure-track position before deciding to leave academia to focus on public philosophy. I first encountered Greg through his popular YouTube channel, which has hundreds of videos breaking down the thinking of philosophers, ranging from Epictetus and Seneca to Hegel and Hume. Greg really is one of those people who has an incredible breadth in his understanding of philosophy. And I think that comes off in this episode where instead of just focusing on ancient philosophy, Greg's able to show how Stoicism has interacted with and been received by philosophers throughout a broad history of time. So I think this will be fun, a fun episode for anybody looking to see Stoicism in that broader philosophical context. I hope you enjoy. Okay. Hi, Greg. How you doing? I'm doing good. And, yeah. and you? No, doing great. Excited to chat with you. Really looking forward to this conversation. So for those listening who might not be familiar with, with you and your background, I was hoping you could kick things off. Tell us a bit about how you got into Stoicism, kind of your journey into the Stoic community. Yeah. So, I mean, I got exposed to a bit of Stoicism back when I was a, a college student about half of my lifetime ago, but it, it didn't really stick. And I don't think I was in a proper frame of mind to really appreciate was what was going on. You know, we, we read the Enchiridion because we did an ancient philosophy class and that was basically all that my professors presented. And, and it was kind of like, you know, Plato, Aristotle, those are the real show. Now we're going to do this Hellenistic stuff because we have to cover it. And then we'll get get past that and get on to, to cool stuff instead. So they, they weren't very receptive to it. I, I did like, you know, some of the ideas, but I, I think I had a hard time wrapping my head around quite a few of the things that were being said. And it might have been because of the translations. And then I read Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. I picked it up at a used bookstore. And I really liked some of it. And then like the virtues talk kind of went over my head. And I think there's a lot of things that I just didn't have anyone who could explain it to me. And I didn't have the background to, to appreciate it well. And then it kind of, I just dropped it for a while. And when I was in graduate school, I happened to pick up Epictetus's discourses. And I was very interested in not issues so much of free will and determinism, but like more about the mechanics of how does the will actually work? How do we form habits? How do we, you know, move ourselves either towards the good or away from it, become better or worse people? How do we develop self-control? 
And I started reading it and I was actually in a bookstore reading it. And I was like, holy crap, this is really interesting stuff. Cause I'd been exposed to, you know, platonic and Aristotelian, let's call it phil philosophical anthropology and psychology and some other stuff. And I didn't know that the Stoics had this sort of approach. And then I, you know, I started reading more. I was very interested in philosophical theories that pertain to anger and anger management. And I found that the Stoics had a lot of really cool resources for that, including a whole book by Seneca on anger, but, you know, good stuff in Marcus and Epictetus and, and, and Seneca's other works. And so I just started, you know, I started studying. And I think the thing that actually like drew me into the community was before modern Stoicism became the modern Stoicism organization, they were kind of a loose association. There was a blog, Stoicism Today. There was a Stoic Week class that started in 2012. And I started participating in that. And that's how I got to know people. And then I got invited to become the editor of Stoicism Today in 2016. Uh, Patrick Usher, the original editor, stepped down and that effectively like made me part of the organization and you know you get invited to give talks and and things like that and so it just kept growing and growing and growing there wasn't any real plan to it on my part but I, I will say this i'm not i don't identify as a stoic in the sense of like that's my main or only thing i'm i'm an eclectic where huh. i'll you know, take things from the aristotelians or the platonists or the stoics that i find useful very much like Cicero, you know, Cicero is a, a eclectic of that sort. But, you know, I think there's a, a, a lot that Stoicism has to offer. And then there's areas where it's superior to other approaches, right? But then there's also, you know, some of the criticisms that we're going to discuss, I think some of them are actually on point, like Cicero, who says that you Stoics, you really, you got great philosophy, but you're... You're not terrible at rhetoric. You just won't do it. And so you're missing all these great opportunities to get your message out there. Why don't you be more like those Aristotelians who, you know, they don't have to dilute their philosophy by bringing rhetoric in. I think some of those things can, can be kind of on point. Yeah. Well, and, and it's interesting to me that you described yourself as an eclectic because I was trying to think of the right word for it. When I, when I think of you as a philosopher, I think of you as somebody who has such a great functional grasp of so much of the history of mm. philosophy. And as you alluded to, what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about some criticisms of Stoicism. But I'm interested in your take since you know, you're as an eclectic, but you're particularly involved in the modern Stoic community. What do you think are some of the things that Stoicism gets right or does well, or what it, oh. what it attracts you in particular to that part of philosophy's history? Yeah, I won't say that the Stoic theory of emotions is completely correct, but it's certainly more robust and developed than their predecessors. And I think with Stoicism, we also get, let's call them emphases on particular ideas or practices that actually then benefited other schools. Because if you look at, for example, Alexander of Aphrodisias, who's a Aristotelian, he will, he's read the Stoics and he'll engage them or Plutarch, you know, a little bit later on, if I remember right, 
he's a Platonist, but he he heavily engages the Stoics. And so it's sort of like that proverb, iron sharpens iron, right? If you got good stuff over here with the Stoics, then others by arguing against them or appropriating some other stuff, it can it can be quite good. You know, the the emphasis on what we actually do, however you want to translate, what's up to us, how what we can control, what's in our power, what's our business, that, it, you know, officially uh, Epictetus is the person formulating that, although it's an Aristotelian concept originally. But, you know, you see that in Cicero and Seneca, having a lot of focus on that and then like exploring, well, how are things actually in our control or things that seem to be external and indifference, how can we make use of them properly? They're really powerful. And it's, it, you know, I mean, this is the stuff that we still have. I mean, if we uncovered some treasure trove of lost Stoic texts, because we've lost you know, probably 90% of what these, these people wrote, who knows what cool stuff we'd find in there, you know? Yeah, I think that's that, that point about emphasis that's one that I think about a lot, which is this idea of there's there's so much philosophy, there's so much to talk about and focus on, and there's this kind of question of where you draw your attention, where, mm, where do you emphasize, yeah. which is a similar point to the point Epictetus is ma making, right? Which is when you're navigating the world, where's your attention? Where's your emphasis? Is it on what's up to you or on what's not up to you? Yeah, and you know, there's another sense to that too. A lot of times in the history of ideas, we're like super interested in, well, who did something first, right? Yeah. That's not really that important. It, it really is about who's really doing something with it, who's, who's doing something with an idea in a robust way, unpacking it, tying it together with practices that we could, we could incorporate into our lives. So maybe, you know, I just kind of stumbled across the word, but maybe emphasis is something that we should be looking to more often than like who originated something. Uh, yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that's something to be said. I mean, I, I want to get into our topic of, cri of criticisms, but I'm enjoying this. I, I think that's something to be said about the way that scholarship is done, right? So scholarship is a lot about providing credit. So like in academia, it's a lot about, well, you got to give credit, you got to cite, you have to source. Yeah, yeah. And so then when you look at the text, you're like, well, you know, who is Epictetus drawing from? Who is he citing oh, or who, who, you know? Yeah. What's the, what's the, what's the, what, what are the sources here? And, and you end up through that perspective instead of, as you said, which is, I think the Stoics are more focused on, well, okay, what's the way, what's the way to package this, to present this, or what's the way to, to actual, actualize these teachings, you know? Yeah. That's a whole can of worms with Epictetus, right? Because, and, and in two major ways, one is that the only reference that he has to Aristotelians is a negative one where they're, they're not as bad as Epicureans, but they're still like on that continuum. <laughs> <laughs> and yet he is the only Stoic who makes something out of this Aristotelian, uh, originally Aristotelian concept, whatever you want to call it, of proiresis, right? I mean, it's not that people don't use that term before. You can find it in Plato. You can find it in some of the rhetors, but Aristotle turns it into a faculty. And it's not quite as robust in Aristotle as it is in Epictetus. And you're like, well, where the hell did this come from? We don't, I yeah. mean, we know that the Stoics do talk about pro-racists, but they don't care much about it. It's just one kind of horme or, or impulse. 
So there's that going on. And the up to us thing, that's that's in Aristotle too. So you're like, well, what what's going on there? Does he know Aristotle? Does he does he not know Aristotle? We don't we don't know. You know, I mean, the best thing to, is to be kind of agnostic about that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he'll reference Stoic philosophers, particularly Chrysippus. So we know that he's read these guys, but he doesn't often cite them. And he'll, you know, he's kind of disparaging about it. He'll be like, ah, you know, you can read Chrysippus. That's awesome if you if you can do that. But that's mainly because Chrysippus is hard to read. It's better that you actually understand what we're talking about and carry out the practices. So, you know, he, I think he can afford to get away with that because he has studied the stuff so much. He can be kind of flip towards it, you know? Totally. At the risk of, if, if we keep going, I will pull this into a conversation about Epictetus <laughs> for the whole time. Uh, and so I have to stop myself. One of, the, one of the things we wanted to talk about, so building on that theme of who's influencing who, that relationship between thinkers, yeah. one, of the, yeah. one of the things that we thought would be fun to do in this conversation is talk about some criticisms of Stoicism, both by their contemporaries and then also of, you know, later thinkers, but people we might still think of being historical, like Nietzsche and, and Hegel. And I, I think, first I want to say, I think this is a great topic because as you said, iron sharpens iron, just using that metaphor, it really helps you understand what Stoicism is when you see other people bump up against it or other ways of thinking right. bump up against it. And second, I, I, I know for myself, I'm just excited to, I'm just excited to, to learn from you and talk about this because I ha, I'm really focused in this kind of ancient area. So to, to talk about, you know, what people like Hegel think or someone like William James, that's going to be, that's going to be a different experience for me. So to, to jump into it, we wanted to talk about what did, what did Hegel think about the Stoics and kind of what was, I mean, maybe at mm. first, first of all, a little bit, who was Hegel? Why okay. should we care what, what he thinks about the Stoics? And then what does he have to say about Stoicism? All right. So Hegel is, we're talking about Georg William Friedrich Hegel. He's, he's a major German philosopher in the early part of the 19th century. And he's, he's called a German idealist. And it's a very loose movement that includes people who hate Hegel's guts, like Arthur Schopenhauer, who has some horribly unfair criticisms of, of Hegel. It includes a whole bunch of other people. And, and Immanuel Kant is, in large respect, the person who kicks this movement off in the late 18th century. And, you know, Hegel's an interesting thinker in his own right. I do a lot of work on him, but I, I also find him pretty frustrating to read a good bit of the time because he's, he's not a particularly good writer. So you have to really, you know, some of the times that you have to work, it's because the ideas are really complex. And sometimes he just doesn't express those ideas well. And he's a creature of his time in many respects. So the, like the criticisms of, of Stoicism, he makes similar criticisms of Hellenistic philosophy in general. And so, so to back up a little bit, in the up into the 19th century, you do see a lot of big name philosophers thinking that not just the Stoics, but also the skeptics and the Epicureans are really well worth engaging with. And, and also philosophers like Cicero. So if you look at David Hume, who's not that distant in time, he actually has essays. And, and the essays are on what he considers, considers to be important philosophical points of view. One is the Platonist. Okay, Plato's always a big name, right? 
There's no the Aristotelian because that's considered just kind of moribund stuff, you know, associated with the scholastics. And then the others are the Stoic, the skeptic, and the Epicurean. So there's a lot of people in the, from the Renaissance onward to, you know, let's, I mean, if we want to be very arbitrary and probably wrong about this, let's say, you know, 1800, right? Who are there, you know, they may be criticizing these people, but they're taking them seriously as philosophers. And then in the early 1800s, particularly in Germany, there's this set of ideas that all get kind of glommed together. And one of them is that Plato and Aristotle are the real ancient philosophers who offer us something important to, to grapple with, right? Something with metaphysical depth, something with, with real ethical and epistemological interest. And then the stuff that comes after them, eh, that's not very interesting until we get to Plotinus. And then once again, we've got great metaphysics going on and then Christianity comes around. You've got Augustine and people like that. And, you know, sometimes you look at that and you're like, well, how the hell did they come up with that idea? So part of it is tied in, especially for Hegel, with the, the notion that in the ancient Greek city-state, people could develop themselves more than they could in the ways of organizing things that followed. So like, you know, Alexander, well, Philip conquers Greece essentially. And, you know, as a side note to everyone, you know, people who are Spartan fanciers are always like, well, he didn't conquer Sparta. He could have. I mean, he just didn't consider it worth his time and he wasn't going to bother with them. They were, you know, like a hillbilly backwater by that time of, of Greece and had been beaten many times by, you know, like the Thebans and people like that. So, you know, Alexander inherits that, founds this gigantic empire, which then after he dies, breaks apart into, you know, larger units. And the idea was that you as a human being, you know, you have the greatest potential for development in a small community where you can like see everybody and, you know, engage in politics. And then that's always been a silly like idealization, it usually didn't work that way. Elites ran just about all of these cities. It, it wasn't quite so egalitarian as that. But this is the idea that Hegel and, and other people have. So all these Hellenistic philosophies become reinterpreted as escapes from the crappy situation that you now inhabit. So that goes along with this, eh, you know, Aristotle, Plato, they were able to do the real philosophy. These other guys, nah, it's kind of like second rate. And, you know, Hegel also says, so he adds one other thing to the mix. And this is in the, his lectures on the history of philosophy. <laughs> he says that we moderns, we can't, we can't like take on these sorts of things anymore. We can't pretend to be Stoics or even Aristotelians, you know? We're in a new configuration. It's silly to pretend that you could possibly live like a Stoic or an Epicurean or a skeptic. You got to, you got to, he's not saying throw it all out. You know, you still study it, but it's just not a viable possibility. I mean, if you were to bring him in today and show him the modern Stoic movement that's developed with, you know, I don't even know how many people, I would say there's probably at least a million people worldwide who are doing something, right? he might have to revise his views or he might be dogmatic and just say, no, no, none of that counts. You know, and they're all just deluding themselves. As someone who's very biased the other way, what was the perspective on why it's not viable? It's, 
he just thinks that human consciousness, and not just individual consciousness, but you know, in in societies, has developed so far beyond that that it would just be kind of silly. It'd be sort of like saying, and you know, again, if we think about the examples that could come to mind, like think about how we do sports today. You know, we have really nice equipment that tends to be lighter and stronger and all that. But if you wanted to like ski with old skis that people might've used back, you know, 2000 years ago, I don't know when skis were invented, but I'm, I'm sure it's been a long time. I mean, you could do it, right? It'd be more difficult, but you could do it and you might even get good at it. Hegel's just, he's got this kind of, you know, typical modern mentality of we are so much further advanced and our societies are and our technology and all that, that we, we you, you know, you're deluding yourself if you want to go back to an earlier form of, of social organization and philosophy, what he would call a shape of consciousness, you know, a gestalt. Is, is the term that he uses for, for shape. So, you know, when you look at that, a lot of people bought into that. And it wasn't just Hegel who was saying that. It was, you know, people who were doing ancient scholarship. And it becomes kind of an unquestioned prejudice that I think goes all the way through into the 20th century. That's why figures like Anthony Long and in, in particularly in, in, in respect to Stoicism, Lawrence Becker are so important for academic understanding of these things because they, they don't buy into that prejudice. And it's the sort of thing where, like, if you've been told, don't bother with these people over here, you're not going to bother with those people over there. You're going you're mm-hmm. to trust what the experts or your professors say. And if you, do, if you do spend time with them, you'll be like, oh, I'm slumming with these second-rate philosophers. Maybe there's something interesting in them. But if you actually like look carefully at what the texts have, there's really cool stuff. Same thing you could say with Plutarch, you know, a, a Platonist. He got dismissed. He's just second-rate. But I mean, his stuff is amazing, you know? So, so that was, that's part of what's driving the story with Hegel. And then there's one other element, you know, Hegel it does, he's got a whole section of the phenomenology of spirit, which is entitled Stoicism. But what he means by Stoicism is this retreat within, you know? And now think about like, you know, the, the, the trope of the retreat, right? Marcus actually uses that. You've got an inner citadel, right? An Acropolis within you. You can take a retreat anytime that you want, but you don't do it to hide from the world. You do it so you can go back out and re-engage the world. Hegel interprets Stoicism as this kind of sour grapes, reality sucks. I'm just going to withdraw into myself where I can find the true, the good, the, the rational, not like this, this screwy world out here. And, you know, when you compare that to what Stoics actually say in their texts, you're like, how, how did this guy arrive at this conclusion? Well, he started out with this notion that the end of the Greek city state was the end of an important way of, of forming people, you know? So his criticisms are generally not on point, but they are on point, I guess you could say for a, you know how like we contrast uppercase S stoicism and lowercase S stoicism. They're, they're, they're right about the lowercase S stuff. But I, I actually think that like people like Hegel, as well as others in the 
19th century, they're the ones that are actually responsible for there being a lowercase s stoicism. All this talk about, you know, stoicism is just stiff upper lip and, you know, figure out what matters and, and the things that don't matter, don't matter at all, you know, withdraw within yourself. I, I think that they're the ones who created within the intellectual culture, a caricature of stoicism that, that a lot of people have like bought, bought into down to the, down to the present. Yeah. So the, maybe a good criticism of a, of a misinterpretation, a good criticism of a, of an, a different philosophy, which is the small s stoicism. The other thing I was thinking there, I, I loved your ski metaphor, even if it was, even if you just made it up, I, I still really liked it. Um, yeah, it might be totally historically inaccurate. <laughs> but the, the, I do have a kind of respect for people who meet Stoic, like, even if they're rejecting Stoic as a bad pair of skis, the, Hegel's still skiing, I guess, right? Like, he's still taking yeah. philosophy seriously <laughs> and just saying they're just not succeeding. I sometimes get frustrated with with if you look at Stoicism or philosophy as a kind of historical artifact and you're like, wow, I can't criticize it. It's because it's like crystallized, mm. it's pristine. I can't wrestle yeah, with yeah. it. So I, I, I have a respect for people that, that take stoicism seriously enough to ha to, to have problems with it. If they think it's wrong, obviously it's too bad if, if you're misinterpreting it in this kind of rejection of life. It's a good way to put it. it, it that's, that's another way you could frame it as, and that's a good one will lead in with Nietzsche, right? Rejection of life, rejection of like the richness of our our lives. Well, that's that's what I was going to say. I wanted to jump over to some some Nietzsche because that's the way I understand his criticism of Stoicism was yeah. kind of being very similar to the way you were presenting Hegel there, which is you're retreating to the inner citadel. You're not confronting the world, I, I guess, bravely. You're actually being maybe kind of cowardly in this in this rejection of the world as it is, and then. Nietzsche has these things about, ironically, you know, you call that living in accordance with nature, but you come, you know, about maybe as far from it as possible. Yeah. And, yeah. He, and he, he's got kind of, so if we only look at that one long passage that, that tends to be the one that everybody brings up, right? There's a lot of moving parts there. And then when we look at the other things that he says about stoicism, he, he talks about it in several different books, but I think that, you know, if we stick with just beyond good and evil, Right. At one point, he actually, he says, we Stoics. So clearly, he's not rejecting them entirely out of hand. And you got to say, well, what, what is it that he, what's the beef he has with them? And it's, there is the like life denying thing, you know, for Nietzsche, he says, you're tyrannizing over nature. You know, you're making nature look like you rational, which, you know, Stoicism does. The Logos runs through everything. We can, we can actually understand nature and be part of it. And he's like, nah, you're, you're just projecting that onto this messy thing that we, we actually call nature. And I don't know, maybe, maybe there's some parts of that that are actually right. When, when you see stoic arguments for how everything works out nicely and fits together nicely, I, I kind of think some of us are like, ah, I don't, I don't think that's, that's quite true. It's gotta be more complicated. But really what's happening here is Nietzsche, you could reframe it as Nietzsche saying, I've got a different conception of nature than you do. So I don't like your conception of nature and yours should be more like mine. Now that's, that's not a good criticism at all. <laughs> and so people who bring that up, they, they, 
you know, there's a lot of people who seem to think that if you can criticize something, it must be, it must be wrong, right? Or some famous person has had something to say about it. But what if the famous person's wrong? You know, there, you got to actually go further with that. And then the other thing that he says that I think he's actually more positive about, talking about tyrannizing over nature, well, that's what nature thinks we have to do with ourselves because we are complicated, composite things. So the will to power within our body or our, our spirit, which is something that comes out of body, is the best part of ourself or, or you know, sometimes the worst part of ourself running the show, right? And then we do this in families and societies. This, this self-tyrannizing, Nietzsche thinks, is something that allowed us to develop as a species. So he's not, you know, he's not saying that it's always a, a bad or cowardly thing, you know. It might actually be necessary for producing a certain kind of human being. So one thing here is this idea that tyranny is, is maybe not as bad as, you know, we have to be careful. When we hear tyranny, we think, wow, this is terrible. But when Nietzsche's yeah. using it, maybe, you know, maybe he has some respect for tyrants in a sense. And so I suppose what, what would then, so you, I was understanding you to say that Nietzsche's maybe more sympathetic to the Stoics than we would think. What does a kind of sympathy, maybe what does, what does that look like? What does a sympathetic Nietzschean reading of Stoicism look like? Yeah. Well, it would have to, it would have to throw out some things that traditional Stoicism thinks are absolutely central, like, you know, the notion of the, the universe itself being, I mean, the pantheism to begin with, you know, the, the universe being mm -hmm. one vast organized cosmos, but even having logos running through all of it or providence, right? You know, the, the stoic commitment, which is not a purely stoic commitment. I mean, Christians, Jews have, have this as well. You know, the Platonists in a certain sense might, might buy into this, that things are arranged well, you know? I mean, Nietzsche doesn't, if you were going to, if you were going to try to fuse Nietzscheanism and Stoicism, you'd, that would be one you'd have to get rid of. I guess you could also say that Nietzsche would look at the Stoics at, less as like guides for us, providing us with the overall you know, like well-worked-out philosophical structure, and he'd be, he'd be more interested in experimenting. But, I mean, that's not missing in Stoicism. Epictetus is quite often willing to say to people who are not buying into his stuff, he'll say, well, you go and try it your way, and then after you screw it up, you know, let's have a chat. <laughs> like, like, for example, the guy who doesn't want to study logic. He's like, ah, it's just, I just need to do exercises. And he's like, well, okay. How do you know you have to do exercises? Did somebody convince you of that, right? Maybe you should be using a little bit of logic there, right? So I, I don't know. I think Nietzsche probably would be more interested in us just, you know, doing bold experiments, but there's no reason why we couldn't. Uh, let's use a term again. You know, the, he says, you Stoics, you self-tyrannize. Well, that's part of what an, a Nietzschean strong person or, you know, if there is such a thing as the Ubermensch, that's part of what they do is, is rule themselves cruelly, you know? So I think he'd be cool with that. You just have to do it in a kind of a, a punk way, maybe a bit yeah, more of a cynic so way. I should say the whole notion of being like pro-social, yeah, Nietzsche wouldn't buy that, right? 
Yeah. Because <laughs> that's, that's more like what he calls herd mentality and or her, her, herd morality. But, you know, you Nietzsche doesn't want you to be this. You, you all, you've got all these book covers with the wanderer and you see the guy standing on the mountain looking at the clouds and stuff like that. That's a failed Nietzschean. I mean, and Nietzsche's life was not all that happy either, in part due to illness. But Nietzsche thinks that it's nice to have solitude, Einsamkeit, right, to be by yourself, but you should ultimately have friendships. You know, you should have relationships with other people, just not with those, you know, scummy, plebe, herd people, you know. But, you know, you can find other people of, of who are into the things that you're into. And I, I think, you know, the Stoics really appreciate relationships and friendship. Yeah, I mean, I, I like that. I think, I think also, I think where we're getting here, what I'm, what I'm connecting between these two examples, the Hegel and the Nietzsche, is this tendency of we have to put things in boxes, and you know, yeah. maybe, maybe Hegel's making a mistake when he puts Stoicism in a box, and maybe we're making a mistake when we take Nietzsche's criticism of Stoicism in a box, and this ability to kind of embrace the ambiguity or, or a little bit more broadness here. That's yeah, like, I think that's right. Yeah. Maybe not as immediately satisfying, but probably more, probably a bit more accurate too. Um, yeah, and if and if we value truth, right? So, and again, not a purely Stoic thing, but the Stoics place a really high premium on being in touch with reality. You know, seeing things the way they are, not misrepresenting things. Then, you know, when we're looking at philosophers, we don't want to have crappy pop culture misses the point kind of glosses on them. We want to actually read the text and see what it, what it says. Mm -hmm. And so moving, moving, moving to another thinker, who's William James and what does, what mm. does he have to say about stoicism? Well, he is an interesting guy. We typically call him a pragmatist and we often when in philosophy, we forget that he actually held a position in psychology. He straddles both both fields, and he's he's not the guy who coined the term pragmatism. There's like this story. Do you know Do you know this this story about? So Charles Peirce, Charles Sanders Peirce, is prior to him, and he's kind of a he's a bit more eccentric than James in in some ways, and he produces something that he calls pragmatism, and James kind of copies it, but only certain parts that he likes from, from Peirce. And then he says, I'm doing pragmatism too. And Peirce then doesn't like what James is doing. And he changes the name of his doctrine to pragmaticism and says, it's such an ugly word, nobody will steal it from me, right? But you know, they're not, they're not totally distant from each other. And some of this might've been more about personalities. So James is a huge advocate of adopting this, this pragmatic method, which, you know, sometimes people say, oh, it's, you know, whatever works is true. It's not quite so simple as that, but there's a really heavy emphasis on like, you know, trying to verify things, thinking about what kind of experiments we could set up, thinking about what the cash value of an idea is, to use one of James's famous phrases. And in the varieties of religious experience, he talks about Marcus Aurelius. He doesn't talk so much about Epictetus or Seneca, but he wants to think about the worldview, the, the way of orienting yourself in the world that different points of view offer. And they could be religious. And he, he takes Marcus as being a religious thinker, which I think he is, right? 
he thinks there's a God. He thinks that God does things in the universe. He's not a big prayer guy, but you know, there's neither is Epictetus, who's even more religious, at least in his expressions than, than Marcus Aurelius. And James, you know, he's, he's a, a very nuanced observer. And the, these are actually the Gifford lectures, which for a philosopher is sort of like the pinnacle. You know, if you get to give the Gifford lectures, you know, you've really made it. So he's giving these Gifford lectures on what we can learn without buying into somebody else's religious beliefs and practices, what we can learn by looking at what they say and what they do and how things work. And so he, he's got some pretty sympathetic things to say in parts about Marcus early on in, in the text. But he also, you know, and I think he's right about this. He, he also wants to contrast the Stoic point of view against like a committed Christian point of view, where you know, the Stoic thinks that things are largely fated, you know, and there's no point in praying to God. I mean, if you want to pray, like you could express gratitude, but you're not going to engage in what, what we nowadays in philosophy or religion call petitionary prayer, right? Because it's not going to, you know, if, if it's the right thing to do, God's already doing it. <laughs> you don't need to remind him or her, or, you know, whatever, probably it is better. God's already got that handled, you know? And so there, he thinks that that Marcus is a bit gloomy, which might be right, you know? I mean, I don't, I don't, I, when I read other parts of Marcus, he seems like he, he does have a lot of joy in his life. He can take pleasure. I mean, he, the guy can take pleasure in looking at the cracks on bread. So clearly he's not wandering around, you know, with his head down, oh, woe is me, or something like that, right? And he, and he had a, man, he had a rough life, right? I mean, he went through an awful lot. So, so James is, is kind of an interesting guy. And you could say, if you think about the culture that James is in here in the, in the States, people read Marcus Aurelius or read Seneca or read Epictetus, but what did they actually take from it? There's, there's this kind of, let's call it not fully intellectual culture, but we had some brushes with stuff. I think a lot of, sort of like me when I was a, a college student, you know, you could pick up the meditations and be like, oh, yeah, I like this toughness stuff and not letting things get to me. But this virtue stuff, eh, that's that's not so that that's too preachy, churchy kind of things. And, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not into temperance. You know, I want to drink as much as I can. I'm a college student, you know. And so I think James is part of this. Whether he likes it or not, this cultural movement that produces the lowercase s stoicism as an ideal as the sort of thing that many people have in their mind when they see the word stoic. I don't, I don't think he intended that, but I think that was part of the effect of his, his writings. And so if, if Marcus Aurelius is, I guess, is, is, is too gloomy, what's kind of the alternative here? What is, what is William James arguing for? Oh, he, he's not really arguing for. In the varieties of religious experience, he's looking at sort of like a, a panorama of different religious peoples reporting about their experiences and their mindsets and, and all of that. He's, he's, I don't, I don't think that James wants us to jump in, you know, with some sort of like leap of faith and take on a more optimistic religious attitude. He's just sort of remarking that this, this is the case, that this is about as far as a stoic can go, you know? 
Yeah, so more of a more of a kind of a descriptive descriptive project. There and you then, go. Yeah. Yeah, and then being like, well, <laughs> that's too bad. <laughs> if that's as far as the stoic can get, maybe it's I, maybe it's I will say too, James himself could be quite pessimistic at times. He so that we're getting a little bit into the weeds with this, but it could be kind of good to bring it up. He he mm -hmm. contrasts what he calls the tough-minded and the tender-minded and their attitudes towards life. And the tough-minded are the people who are less in touch with reality than the tender-minded. And the tender-minded, things get to them more, right? But, but it's also because they see how things suck, you know, when they do. Whereas the tough-minded, they're just, you know, kind of whistling, going along, do-do-do-do-do, everything's great, you know. I mean, the limit case would be this cartoon character, Mr. Magoo. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but there, there used to be this cartoon guy who was, like, totally oblivious to his environment and, like, He'd always cause accidents for other people, and he's, he's just going along having a great time. James was himself tender-minded. And I, I actually, now we're going to go further into the weeds. I was in a faculty fellowship one summer with, with Alistair McIntyre, and he was, he was leading it, and there were several, there were 12 of us faculty members in it. And this topic came up about, you know, depression in the contemporary sense. Are you better off not being depressed at all? Or maybe being depressed a little bit is a rational response to the reality that we encounter, and it also helps you to see things more. And, and McIntyre, who himself has, he, he told us in the, the session, he's, he's struggled with depression. He brought up William James, and he said, you know, I, I kind of think, and I don't have proof for this, that being mildly depressed would actually be an advantage for grasping reality as opposed to not having anything like that going on because you're, you're, you know, you're attuned to things. You actually, you know, your response is because you actually do th see the things that don't hold together or get in each other's way or kind of suck. We don't have to be Pollyannish about that. And I think that's right myself. And, and I go by my own experience with depression. You have to be very careful not to impose like a depressive mentality on things and be a downer. But, you know, if, if you look at the world that we exist in, there's a lot of challenges and stuff like that. And so we might actually be doing ourselves a disservice by trying to get rid of all of our negative emotions or all of our negative responses, which I suppose you could say could be a criticism of the stoicism of Stoics, right? If if the goal is to get rid of all anxiety, which you wouldn't though, because there's still like rational fear, right? Caution, mm -hmm. you labea. But get rid of all, all of the, the, what we call the negative emotions. Well, maybe you would be cutting yourself off from some things that are important. And you, and you notice that some of the Stoics actually do consider that. Like officially, grief is a bad emotion. But Seneca is willing to say, I'm not going to advise you to grieve, but I'm also not going to say, don't grieve at all. Just, you know, don't be like doing the kind of crazy stuff that people do, like jumping on the coffin as it's going into the ground or, you know, crying for three days straight or <laughs> stuff like that. Maybe there's, maybe there's something that, that that provides us with that we need. So circling back to James, right? James, I, I think, you know, he, he would be okay with people being stoics, but he would say, you have to approach this experimentally, which I, I think is a good idea, you know, rather than dogmatically saying, well, if, it, if, if it's in the book and it's not working for me, 
I must be the one at fault. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, there's so much interesting things there. I, I don't want to lose this thought I had. One is that I, I never heard of the tender, tender mind ten, or tough minded, but that's really nice. And I think maybe stoicism is a way for tender minded people to try to become tough minded, or at least it, it attracts yeah, yeah. tender minded people because you wouldn't, you wouldn't be going to stoicism unless you were in a position where you were like, I'm feeling a lot and I need to, some help with how I'm yeah, feeling, yeah. at least not today. The second thing is I value this eclecticism that you have that I don't see as much today. And I, I, I love that idea of, you know, practice it experimentally. And if it's not working for you, you know, don't point yourself as the problem. And I like that idea of, you know, we, we can have something, we can have something to learn from this, but I'm not going to be reverential towards a certain book or a system. I'm going to kind of have my own participation in that. And yeah. that's a lot of what I'm hearing from this. And I guess that makes sense with the prag the pragmatics of it, right? And I mean, that's there in Seneca though, right? He says, I want to say it's in letter 33, you know, we don't have kings as Stoics. We all have to, you know, interpret it in our own way. And you, and you see examples of this. I want to say it's letter 120 or 121 where the, the Stoics had this doctrine that I guess was pretty common among them because Arius Didymus also reports it as well, that the virtues were individually living things within the living thing that is our soul. So think of them sort of like almost like the mitochondria in our cells or, I mean, it's hard to figure out what the hell they meant by this. And Seneca has a, a whole letter where he's like, okay, so this is a, you know, a common Stoic doctrine, but I think this is crazy. And here's why. Here's my arguments for it, you know. So I, I think we've got good models for for Stoics that say, yeah, I don't need, I don't think you have to buy everything that our predecessors said. We also know about disputes between them. You know, Cicero reports some of these, for example, in On Duties where like the different scholarchs argued with each other, you know, sometimes in ways that seem kind of shifty. Do you have an example of particularly shifty? Yeah. So this is one I actually use in business ethics. Diogenes seemed to be the shifty guy. Diogenes of Babylon. So this is, this is kind of a sort of like a test case or a moral dilemma that would come up. So imagine that there's a pretty isolated city and it's on the coast and there's a famine going on. There's a lack of grain, right? And this guy's got a ship and it's totally full of grain and he's pulling into the harbor and he knows that there's like a whole fleet of other ships behind him, like a day or two out. And they also have grain. So he's got the market cornered for, for the time being. Now, does he have a duty to inform the other people in the harbor that he's not the only ship with grain? Because if he, if he informs them, then they're not going to pay like, you know, super high prices where he could make a fortune. But it seems like it's the right thing to do to report, right? To say, oh, it's the, all is not lost. And then, you know, to t take uh, a decent price, but not, you know, like scarcity level prices. So Diogenes said, no, nah, it is a duty to do that, you know? And this, this is the scholar of the Stoic school, right? He's like, it's fine, you know? And then I think it's Auntie Potter came after him and he's like, this is, no, this is reprehensible. You, you cannot do that to people. You know, you owe them the the actual truth about this sort of thing. You know, what are you trying to do? Just make a buck off of them? 
I mean, I'm very roughly paraphrasing here, right? I'm adding some stuff in, but so it shows that there's like some serious dis debates and discussions between these people who are leading the school about precisely what the Stoic doctrine is, you know? Yeah. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, even in the modern Stoicism movement, as we continue, or as, as that movement continues to evolve and change and wrestle with the application of Stoicism to contemporary yeah. life. It's not, you know, this thing, this thing has some stretch in it, right? It has some, especially when you get into particular cases, like, like, you know, oh yeah, selling, selling your, selling your grain out of your boat, as we all have had happen to us once or twice. Selling <laughs> things out of the trunk of our car. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, there, that's, that, that, that's more realistic. Not letting know that there's, there's more cars coming, but you don't have to tell them. The other thing I wanted to hit on, follow up on, on our last, on your last, uh, on the William James discussion was this experience working with McIntyre um, or this one thing I want to talk about was this also neo-Aristotelian yeah. discussion of Stoicism, criticisms in that area, maybe what they get right or wrong in your view. Yeah. And McIntyre is an interesting guy for that, because if you read After Virtue, which is a great book, he, he gets the Stoics wrong. He essentially says that they're like proto-conscience and he's, he's pretty dismissive of their, their, their point of view. And Anthony Long wrote a really wonderful piece. And this is, I don't know, probably three, three decades ago. And I don't remember the name of it offhand, but if you type in McIntyre, Anthony Long, Stoicism, it'll pop up immediately in Google. It's got a long title to it. And essentially Long's position was, okay, you're doing great with like explaining all of these things, but you got stoicism wrong. Here's how you actually got it wrong. And, and, you know, as, as the kind of neo Aristotelian that you are, this person committed to traditions and looking for correction, I'm sure you're going to welcome this. Right. And McIntyre did. And actually that's not the only thing he's been criticized for. They, there was an entire book about how he got Kierkegaard wrong with all these Kierkegaard scholars weighing in. I presented a thing about how he got Anselm wrong and, and missed, missed the boat on that. But coming back to Long, the other thing that Long says that's really, really interesting, he says, okay, now there's my negative criticism of you. You got this wrong, this wrong, this wrong. Now let's think about what you are putting forward as something we should be striving for, something that we, we want to say is positive. You've got this notion of a tradition-constituted rationality, meaning that we learn by being part of a tradition that we join and then participate within. And it's not like we can just read all the books from the outside and jump in. We have to actually like be doing it, to be engaged in the community. What you're talking about as Aristotelian applies just as well to the modern Stoicism community. They're doing exactly what you're saying is great about the Aristotelian. So what that means is you have a rival virtue ethics tradition that should be in communication with the Aristotelian tradition, and you can build off of each other. And I would even go so far as to say that we can also say this about the Platonist tradition, you know, the other really massive virtue ethics tradition in antiquity, they have some stuff to offer as well. And there are people out there in, it's not as big as, you know, the more academic Aristotelian community or the, the Stoic community, but there's people out there who are doing group work as Platonists. They get together, you know, every once in a while and contemplate the good and 
stuff like that. And so, you know, we, we want to, instead of like saying, ah, you know, we, we put up our walls here, here's where, you know, Aristotelianism ends. And then, you know, that nasty stoicism begins over here. We should think of it more like things interpenetrating each other, which is the way it was in, in, in ancient world for the, you know, the most part, there were many people who were, if not eclectics, they belonged to a school, but they'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, those Platonists, they got something right over there. Let's take it, you know? Yeah, well, that brings us almost full circle, right? Because when we started, we had this conception of iron sharpens iron. What's one, yeah, something yeah. that stoicism is really cool? Well, it's cool because it it built up, it strengthened these other philosophies. These other philosophies strengthened them. It was this really important part of this conversation and this development of philosophy. So I want to ask you, put you on the spot, what are some things that we could learn from Platonists or Aristotelians, especially for those listening who maybe you know only are exposed to stoicism? But before before you answer that, I did some some internet fact checking. Well, it, it it's it's Greek ethics okay. after McIntyre and the Stoic community of reason. Oh. That's the that's the paper you're talking about, 1983, which is cool. Yeah. So I'll have to give that one a read after. Yeah. So 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 that's 40 years ago. Yeah. Right. That that's been out. I mean, that should be like required reading for everybody. I think. It's, yeah, it's cool. such a good good paper. Now, well, I think so. So for one thing. Plato is just the beginning point of the Platonic tradition, right? There's all these great Platonist authors that we can read. In fact, one of them wrote a really cool commentary on Epictetus's Enchiridion, Simplicius, well worth checking out. And what you see with these traditions is, okay, so they've, they've got like a founder and the literature of the founder, but then they continue to develop stuff along the way, and they might be developing it in relation to the Stoic. So when somebody like Plutarch comes along and says, I'm going to write a whole book about how the Stoic conception of general conceptions or preconceptions, prolapses, it's got problems with it. I think Stoics ought, instead of saying, well, he's not a Stoic, I'm not going to look at that guy. They should, they should look at it and say, okay, maybe, maybe this teaches us something. Or, you know, if you think about the way in which we understand the emotions, maybe Maybe the Stoics can learn some things from the Aristotelians or the Platonists or even other traditions as well about how to understand and then deal with anxiety or anger or sadness. You know, you can, you can bring things in together, which again is, is, is sort of a good practice. Even, even the Epicureans have things to, to offer, as Seneca has, has pointed out. One of the things that is kind of cool that's still happening today in, in neo-Epicurean neo communities is this monthly get-together. I mean, ostensibly, it's to like celebrate Epi Epicurus's birthday, right? But it's basically a communal meal that people have together in order to promote friendship. You know, Stoics could be doing that too. And in fact, you know, many people do, although they don't usually have a communal meal. And you can say, well, what does having a meal bring to the table, pun intended, I guess? Well, you know, when people eat together, they, they share more and they, they bond more. And wouldn't that be a great expression of, you know, the pro-social side of our rationality? I mean, so we could go on and on and on with, with like interesting things. And, you know, I mean, stoicism might even be able to draw things from more explicitly religious uh, traditions, you know, like. You know, monasticism develops after stoicism is is kind of on the wane, but 
maybe there's some interesting things to learn from people like John Cassian, you know, or, or the rule of St. Benedict or things, things like that. Well, I mean, I'm taking that as a kind of a general, a general argument in favor of expanding your tastes, expanding your philosophical horizons. If you've, if you've, you know, only, only kind of dug into stoicism in the time being, um, there's other things you can, you can pick and choose. And as you mentioned earlier, you'd be following in stoic, uh, footsteps by doing so just the way Seneca talked about, um, Epicureanism in his letters, for example. So that, that, I mean, I think that, I think that ends us on a, on a good note and, and as a kind of a, a strong, a strong lesson. So Greg, well, the one thing that I, I, I want to give you the chance to do is say, you know, what do you have going on for people that are interested in learning more from you or, or reading or watching some of your work? Where can they find your stuff? Feel free to share. So I'm really fortunate in that there aren't a lot of Greg Sadlers out there and almost all my stuff comes up pretty quickly in Google results. And it sucks for the other Greg Sadlers who are out there, right? There's a photographer, there's a libertarian political candidate, but they're not, if you type in Greg Sadler or Gregory Sadler, I, I'm, I'm the one, my platforms come up the most. So, you know, I've got a YouTube channel. That's probably what I think most people know me for. And I do, for people who are interested in Stoicism, I have a playlist that's just about Stoic philosophy and it's got over 200 videos in it. I'll plug as well. I have, I have a radio show with a friend of mine called Wisdom for Life. And we, we do talk about Stoicism occasionally, but we stray into all sorts of other practical topics as well that are informed by philosophy. Writings, people can find me on, on Medium. For my academic writings, academia.edu or Phil Papers, or, although I haven't been that consistent in uploading things as I should be, but it, you know, it's pretty easy to find. And I, I do have a, a company, Reason.io, that I've I started back in the early 2010s, and I do philosophical counseling and tutorials, and things like that. And I'll put in a plug too, if people want, want me to come speak, I do professional speaking. I'll be presenting at this year's Stoicon. My wife, Andy Shaka, and I organized the last two years, and so now I get to just sit back and talk rather than MC and organize, and that's kind of nice. So, and that, that's probably enough. I mean, it's so easy just to like type in Greg Sadler or Gregory Sadler in Google and just see what pops up. Yeah, at the expense of the other Greg Sadlers, I've <laughs> I feel bad for them now, but yeah, somebody's got to somebody's got to win. I've been battling with a saxophone instructor from Ottawa, oh, really? Michael Tremblay, for for most of my career. We're pretty neck and neck, so so I can I. I can empathize with the people of the other Greg Sadlers in this situation. But Greg, it's so great to have you on. Really nice to, I mean, I, we, we've been, you know, kind of involved in the Stoicism community for a while. So super nice to talk with you in person. And nice. I, learned, I, I learned a lot and appreciated it. So thanks again. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. And if you'd like to get two meditations from me on Stoic theory and practice a week, just two short emails on whatever I've been thinking about, as well as some of the best resources we found for practicing Stoicism, check out stoaletter.com. It's completely free. You can sign up for it and then unsubscribe at any time as you wish. If you want to dive deeper still, search Stoa in the App Store or Play Store for a complete app with routines, meditations, and lessons 
designed to help people become more stoic. And I'd also like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. You can find more of his work at ancientliar.com. And finally, please get in touch with us. Send a message to stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback, questions, or recommendations. Until next time.